Today's reading is from Galatians chapter 1 verses 11 to chapter 2 verses 21. I want you to know, brothers and sisters, that the gospel I preached is not of human origin. I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it. Rather, I received it by revelation from Jesus Christ. For you have heard of my previous way of life in Judaism, how intensely I persecuted the church of God and tried to destroy it. I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my own age among my own people and was extremely zealous for the traditions of my fathers. But when God, who set me apart from my mother's womb and called me by his grace, was pleased to reveal his son in me so that I might preach him among the Gentiles, I immediately, my immediate response was not to consult any human being. I did not go up to Jerusalem to see those who were apostles before I was, but I went to, into Arabia. Later, I returned to Damascus. Then after three years, I went up to Jerusalem to get acquainted with Cephas who stayed with, and stayed with him 15 days. I saw none of the other apostles, only James, the Lord's brother. I assure you before God that what I am writing to you is no lie. Then I went to Syria and Cilicia. I was personally unknown to the churches of Judea who are, in, who are in Christ. They only heard the report, the man who formerly persecuted us is now preaching the faith he once tried to destroy, and they praised God because of me. Then after, four, then after 14 years, I went up again to Jerusalem, this time with Barnabas. I took Titus along also. I went in response to a revelation and, meeting privately with those esteemed as leaders, I presented to them the gospel that I preach among the Gentiles. I wanted to be sure that I was not running and had not been running my race in vain. Yet not even Titus, who was with me, was compelled to be circumcised, even though he was a Greek. This matter arose because some false believers had infiltrated our ranks to spy on the freedom that we have in Christ Jesus and to make us slaves. We did not give in to them for a moment, for that so that the truth of the gospel might be preserved for you. As for those who are held in high esteem, whatever they were makes no difference to me. God does not show favoritism. They added nothing to my message. On the contrary, they recognized that I had been entrusted with the task of preaching the gospel to the uncircumcised, just as Peter had been to the circumcised. For God, who was at work in Peter as an apostle to the circumcised, was also at work in me as an apostle to the Gentiles. James, Cephas and John, those esteemed as pillars, gave me and Barnabas the right hand of fellowship when they recognised the grace given to me. They agreed that we should go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised. All they asked was that we should continue to remember the poor, the very thing I had been eager to do all along. When Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. For before certain men came from James, he used to eat with the Gentiles. But when they arrived, he began to draw back and separate himself from the Gentiles because he was afraid of those who belonged to the circumcision group. The other Jews joined him in his hypocrisy so that, they in, they, so that by their hypocrisy, even Barnabas was led astray. When I saw that they were not acting in line with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas in front of all of them, You are a Jew. You live like a Gentile and not like a Jew. How is it then that you force Gentiles to follow Jewish customs? 
We who are Jews by birth and not sinful Gentiles know that a person is not justified by the works of the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ. So we too have put our faith in Jesus Christ, that we may be justified by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law, because by the works of the law no one will be justified. But if in seeking to be justified in Christ we Jews find ourselves among, um, also among the sinners, doesn't that mean that Christ promotes sin? Absolutely not. If I rebuild what I destroyed, then I really would be a lawbreaker. For through the law I died to the law so that I might live for God. I have been crucified with Christ and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I, live, I now live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not set aside the grace of God, for if righteousness could be gained through the law, Christ died for nothing. The story I love telling is one I heard a while ago about a man called Galen Kumbarami who worked for the Bible Society in Zimbabwe. Now he used to hand out the New Testament in rural areas. And one day he was handing them out and went to hand one to a man who was walking past him, but the man just refused to take one. And when Kambarami asked him why, the man said, because this thing pollutes people, I just don't want one. He said actually the only reason he'd accept the New Testament from Kambarami was if he could rip out its pages and use them for cigarette paper. Now, Kambarami said to the man, well, that's fine, but just promise me that as you rip out the pages, you'll actually read them before you use them to smoke. And the man agreed, Kambarami handed him the Bible and they parted ways. A few years later, Kambarami was at a conference in the same area doing a talk. And towards the end of what he was saying, a man in a suit stood up who Kambarami didn't recognise, asking to speak. He said to everyone, This man doesn't recognise me because when he met me, I was a drunkard who didn't want anything that he had to give. And then he told the story of how Kambarami had tried to give him a Bible, but how he would only use it for cigarettes. How Kambarami had told him that that was okay, but made him promise that he'd read the page he was about to smoke before he smoked it. This man said, Well, so I smoked my way through Matthew. I smoked my way through Mark. I smoked my way through Luke. That's a lot of cigarettes, right? But then he said, I got to John 3 verse 16 and I could go no further. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. When the man read these words, he said his life was changed. He put his trust in Jesus and it changed his life completely. It's a story of amazing transformation. Of this man once thinking that the Bible polluted people to believing what it says and putting his trust in Jesus. Well, in the passage we've read today, just like this man, we see the gospel take root and affect an incredible transformation in Paul. This morning we're looking at why Paul wants the Galatians and us to read of this transformation and how this helps us to live in light of the good news of who Jesus is. Now hopefully you were handed a leaflet as you walk through the door, uh, and on that leaflet you should find an outline with the first point saying, A Gospel That Transforms. Now, in Paul we see an amazing transformation. And Paul wants us to know that this transformation was God's work all along, and that the Gospel Paul proclaims comes from God himself and not another person. 
If you were here last week, you might remember we heard about a group of people who had entered the church in Galatia from Jerusalem and were trying to turn the Christians there away from the gospel Paul had proclaimed. Whereas Paul proclaimed a gospel that said that salvation of sin is through Jesus and Jesus only, this group would claim that this is not the case. They added to the gospel, saying, no, it's not enough that Jesus died for sin. In Acts 15, we actually read about the argument this group held to, which was this. The Gentiles must be circumcised and required to keep the law of Moses. They are adding to the gospel. Now, this group is generally referred to as the circumcision group because this is what they wanted to happen in order for others to to become part of God's people. But in the book of Galatians, Paul refutes these claims. And last week, we read that these claims are actually a perversion of the gospel, that it's wrong. And that Paul was amazed that the Galatians would ever be convinced to turn to this false gospel. Well, in Galatians this morning, Paul writes about why the gospel he shared with them is the only one they should listen to. Verse 11 to 12 gives us a hint as to what the circumcision group may have argued against Paul, though, that would make him write the way he does. They may have said something like this. You know, Paul heard the gospel from the other apostles in Jerusalem, sure, but the gospel he heard wasn't fully formed. We also heard the gospel from the apostles, from James, and we have his approval, so you should listen to us. Well, who should the Galatians listen to? I mean, you can kind of understand their confusion, can't you? But Paul says, I want you to know, brothers and sisters, that the gospel I preached is not of human origin. I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it. Rather, I received it by revelation from Jesus Christ. Paul says, I didn't get the gospel from the other apostles. I received it from Jesus himself. And from here we read about an amazing transformation As overnight, Paul goes from someone who tried to destroy the church to someone who preaches Christ to the Gentile. No smoking through the Bible needed. Paul does a full 180. For you have heard my previous way of life in Judaism, how intensely I persecuted the church of God and tried to destroy it. I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my own age among my people and was extremely zealous for the traditions of my father. But when God, who set me apart from my mother's womb, called me by his grace, was pleased to reveal his son in me so that I might preach him among the Gentiles, my immediate response was not to consult any human being. You see, in Paul we see an amazing transformation. And Paul wants us to know that this was God's work and that the gospel Paul proclaims comes from God himself and not from any other person. You know, if you want to see evidence of the work of God in someone's life, Paul is a pretty good example. If you want to see the kind of person that God seeks to save, then Paul's a great example. Someone who murdered, who persecuted God, who Jesus says persecuted him. I mean, pretty much Paul's pain position was to make sure that people weren't following Jesus. But God, in his grace and mercy, chooses to save him. If you're here this morning and wondering if God could possibly love you despite the things you've done in your life, if God could possibly want you to be in a relationship with him, well, look at how God has acted toward Paul here. A murderer. Someone who persecuted God's people. Could God love you? Yes. Does he? Yes. How much more can Jesus show you that other than by dying and facing a penalty for sin so that you don't have to? 
In the gospel, we see God's incredible love and we see how it transforms people, how it transformed Paul, how it transformed that man Galen Kambarami met, how it's transformed the lives of the people in this room this morning. The gospel changes everything. And it's undeniable in Paul. And the church we read in verse 21 to 24, who've only up until that point heard of this transformation, well, they praise God because of what he's done in Paul's life. Because in Paul we see an amazing transformation. And he wants us to know that this was all God's work and that the gospel he proclaims comes from God himself, not any other person. So the Galatians should trust in the gospel that Paul is proclaiming, not in the false gospel the circumcision group is proclaiming. And in the next section we read that this transforming gospel is also a gospel that brings unity. That should be point two on your outlines this morning. Point two, a gospel that brings unity. Well, Paul wants the Galatians to see that the gospel he preaches is the same the apostles received and proclaimed. And Paul wants the Galatians to understand that this gospel is one that brings unity, not division. Unity, not division. See, Paul's been wandering around the place preaching the gospel for about 14 years before he heads up to Jerusalem. And the only reason he's going to Jerusalem is because Jesus tells him to. In chapter 2, verse 2, Paul says, I went in response to a revelation. You know, Paul meets with those esteemed as leaders. Now, this is a title for the apostles, a pretty weird one, but most likely Paul called them those esteemed leaders uh, because the circumcision group had started over-elevating the apostles' position to mean something that it didn't. Uh, So Paul doesn't want that definition confusing what he's about to say. Paul says that he presented to the apostles the gospel he preached among the Gentiles. Uh, And why does he do it? Well, he writes that he wanted to be sure that he was not running and had not been running his race in vain. Yet, verse 3, not even Titus, who was with me, was compelled to be circumcised, even though he was a Greek. This matter arose because some false believers had infiltrated our ranks to spy on the freedom we have in Christ Jesus and to make us slaves. These verses help us understand why Paul wanted to share with the apostles what he had been preaching to the Gentiles. It wasn't to get their approval. I mean, Paul is is so unconcerned with their approval that it's not funny. But what Paul wanted to make sure of was that the apostles hadn't changed the gospel after that group of false believers had infiltrated their ranks, you know, to spy on the freedom they have in Christ and to make them slaves. Paul wanted to make sure he hadn't been running his race in vain. That he would get to Jerusalem and find out that the apostles who had been given the same gospel as him had gone on to accept and adopt a false gospel. A gospel that says Jesus died for sin, but the Gentiles must be circumcised and required to keep the law of Moses. And that's why Paul brings Titus along. You know, here is the real test. Will the apostles just say what the gospel is, or will they actually practice it in the presence of a Gentile by accepting Titus as a brother in Christ, along with Paul and Barnabas, who are both Jews? and not requiring him to be circumcised and to practice uh, the law of Moses. I mean, but poor Titus, right? How how did that conversation go? Hey, mate, can you just come along with me to Jerusalem? Uh, Why? Uh, Well, why? Is it it dangerous? Well, depends on what your definition of dangerous is. How do you feel about sharp knives? I wonder if Paul even told Titus why he was inviting him along. I'm sure he probably did. Uh, And it was important that he did. 
because of Paul's desire to test the apostles. And what do we find out? Well, Paul writes that not even Titus, who was with me, was compelled to be circumcised even though he was the Greek. The apostles passed the test. They haven't given in to the false gospel that the circumcision group wanted to spread. Paul says of this group in verse 5 that we did not give in to them for a moment so that the truth of the gospel might be preserved for you. See, the, gospel, the apostles have passed Paul's test. They're holding on to the truth of the gospel that both Jew and Gentile receive salvation from sin through Jesus and Jesus alone. Two people groups once divided are now united in the person of Jesus as his people. The gospel that transforms is one that unites. The gospel that Paul proclaimed to the Gentiles is the same one we read that Peter proclaimed amongst the Jews in verse 7. There is one gospel that transforms and unites us. The apostles accept that Paul has been proclaiming the gospel just as they have. I went to India a few years ago on a trip to run some conferences for pastors there. And we had translators helping us in our small groups to chat with those who were around us. You know, despite the major cultural differences, the massive language barrier, the, the vastly different life experiences, one thing cut through all of those barriers. It was that when we met together, we didn't do it as people from other parts of the world with differences and ways of doing our life. We did it as brothers and sisters in Christ. People united by the same gospel that had called us out from darkness and into the light and transformed our lives. The same gospel that called for us to put our trust in Jesus who had died for us, who was raised against a new life and who unites us in that life. It was incredible to feel that unity in the flesh with our brothers and sisters. Look around the room here this morning. It's that same unity that we share in this very room. Unity in the gospel of Jesus that has called us to life in him as brothers and sisters. And anything that gets in the way of that unity in the gospel, well, Paul has something to say about it. See, Paul wants the Galatians to see that the gospel he preaches is the same the apostles received and proclaimed. It's a gospel that unites the Jews and the Gentiles together as they respond to the same gospel. But in the next few verses we read something sad. And something that Paul thinks is very dangerous. See, Peter, the very apostle who we are told was sent to the Jews to proclaim the gospel, is being turned away from the unity that it brings. Peter is distancing himself from Gentiles by only spending time with those with a Jewish heritage. Point three in your outline should say, uh, sitting with the cool kids. Well, the gospel transforms, it brings unity, and Paul doesn't want a false gospel to creep in and bring disunity, division. He wants Peter to practice what he's preaching, that we are justified by faith and not by works. You know, I was uh, always the younger brother following around my older brother Sam and our mate Davo. Uh, but I was that annoying younger brother that they'd kind of just drag along with him because mum told him to. Now, I really wanted to fit in with them though. I wanted to be one of the cool kids. Now, I finally got my seat at the table when I helped play a prank on one of Davo's siblings while we were away on holiday. It involved getting up at 5am in the morning, creeping upstairs to Davo's siblings' room. Uh, you know, three boys a whole lot of stealth, and two massive cans of shaving cream. And you can ask me more about it later, but after that prank, I was in. 
uh, at least for a while. I, mean, I was a pretty annoying younger brother. But I wanted to know how to be part of the group. I wanted to be in it. Well, how with Christianity do we become part of God's people? How with Christianity are we made right with God? Well, in Peter we see a man who was a Christian and a Jew who has been sent to proclaim the gospel to the Jews, who, who actually did proclaim that gospel, but is now shying away from the unity the gospel brings. Why is that happening? Why is Paul at one point in time acting like both Gentiles and Jews are part of the same group, are, are unified, and then at another point in time acting like this isn't the case? Well, Paul lets us know why, and he has some very strong words about Peter's actions to share as well. Paul writes, when Cephas, which is another name for Peter, came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. For before certain men came from James, he used to eat with the Gentiles. But when they arrived, he began to draw back and separate himself from the Gentiles because he was afraid of those who belonged to the circumcision group. The other Jews joined him in his hypocrisy, so that by their hypocrisy, even Barnabas was led astray. See, Paul, out of fear, is no longer sitting with the Gentiles, but is being swayed by the circumcision group who would have said that the Gentiles were unclean, that they needed to be circumcised, that they needed to follow certain laws before they could eat with the Jews. They were not yet part of the in-crowd. They couldn't sit with the Paul kids. Peter might not actually have agreed with them. After all, the gospel he proclaimed was the same as Paul's, wasn't it? But did his actions betray that? No. By the sounds of it, Peter was saying one thing but doing another. And by doing this, he was actually allowing disunity to occur. He was letting the false doctrine of justification by works creep into the church. And Paul wants to remind Peter that this is not the truth. That it's not about following the law that makes us right with God. It's about faith in Christ. And Paul wants Peter to live under God's grace, not under fear of the circumcision group. He wants him to understand the unity that the gospel brings and to live in line with it. Point four on your outline should say, living under God's grace. See, Peter is living in response to how the circumcision party perceives him. And by doing so, he's making it possible for that false gospel to prevail. He isn't living under God's grace, but is living under fear. But Paul wants the Galatians to know that living in light of the gospel means no longer living to just get things from God. It means living in response to what God's already given. Paul seeks to turn them away from the false teaching of the circumcision group so that they, along with Peter, who actually does do this later in Acts, turn back to the truth of the gospel and away from slavery. Because that's what the circumcision group was ultimately calling Christians to away from freedom in Jesus and into slavery under a law they could not possibly uphold. The issue in particular that Peter seems to be struggling with are the laws around cleanliness. Before Jesus, Jews did not eat with Gentiles because Gentiles were unclean. And in order to worship God properly, you had to be clean. In verse 14, Paul writes that you are a Jew, yet you live like a Gentile. Now what Paul is referring to here is what Peter himself said in Acts 11 when he went to eat in the house of a Gentile man. Now there had been some criticism from Jewish believers at that point and Peter's response to them had been that God had revealed to him in a vision, uh, you can read of the vision in Acts 10, 
that nothing God makes clean should be called impure. Peter later realises that the Gentiles he is with in that chapter are made clean and pure the same way that he is made clean and pure. And it's not through heritage, it's not through following the law, it's through faith in Jesus. So Paul says to Peter, how is it then that you force Gentiles to follow Jewish customs? Peter's going against what God himself has revealed to him. He's distancing himself from eating with Gentiles because the circumcision groups say they are unclean unless they follow the law. But in verse 15 to 16, Paul puts forward what Thomas Cranmer called the strong rock, the foundation of Christian religion. See, Paul, in contrast to the circumcision groups, a false doctrine of justification by works of the law, highlights the glorious reality of how we can be not only pure before God, but considered blameless and guiltless before Him. Paul here puts forward the truth of justification by faith in Jesus alone. He writes in verse 16, We too have put our faith in Jesus, that we may be justified by faith in Him, and not by works of the law. Because by works of the law, no one will be justified. It's a very Christian jargon kind of word, justification, but J.I. Packer, I think, helpfully unpacks the definition for us this morning. He writes, To justify in the Bible means to declare a man or woman on trial that they are not liable to any penalty, but they're entitled to all the privileges due to those who have kept the law. Justifying is the act of a judge pronouncing the opposite sentence to condemnation, that of acquittal and legal immunity. And what Paul is saying in Galatians 2.16 is that we are justified through faith in Jesus and not through works of the law. See, this is true freedom, not living under the weight of bearing the penalty for our rejection of God, because Jesus has dealt with that by facing the penalty for us. And if we put our trust in Jesus as the one who has done that, we are justified, we are innocent before God. We're justified by faith in Christ and Christ alone. But the circumcision group thinks that Jesus' death wasn't enough. You see, they want Christians to continue trying to gain God's favour through works of the law. In other words, they're calling people back into slavery and away from the freedom that exists in Christ. In verse 17, we read about what their arguments uh, against Paul would have been. They would have argued something like this. Uh, This comes from John Stott. He writes, Paul's critics argue like this. Your doctrine of justification through faith in Christ only apart from the works of the law is a highly dangerous doctrine. It fatally weakens a man and woman's sense of moral responsibility. If they can be accepted through trusting in Christ without any necessity to do good works, you're actually encouraging them to break the law. Those from the circumcision group are essentially saying, if God justifies bad people, what is the point of being good? Can't we just do as we like and live as we please? Doesn't this mean that Jesus promotes sin? But Paul's answer to this question is absolutely not. He says, if I rebuild what I destroyed, then I really would be a lawbreaker. For the law I died to, for through the law I died to the law that I might live for God. I've been crucified with Christ and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I now live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not set aside the grace of God, for if righteousness could be gained through the law, Christ died for nothing. 
against the claim that if we are justified by faith in Jesus, then Jesus really promotes sin, Paul says, no, this is false. And if this was their understanding of justification by faith in Jesus alone, then they misunderstand what justification by faith means. Because justification is not just about someone's legal status being changed before God while their character is left untouched. I'll say that again. Justification is not just about someone's legal status being changed before God while their character is left untouched. See, Paul writes of a change that happens when someone puts their trust in Jesus, of a transformation, such as we heard about in the first section of our passage today in Paul's own life, as we heard about the life of the man Kamarami gave that Bible to. See, Paul writes about a change in a person when they truly recognise who Jesus is and put their trust in him. He says, For through the law I died to the law so that I might live for God. I've been crucified with Christ, and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I now live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. I did not set aside the grace of God, for if righteousness could be gained through the law, Christ died for nothing. The idea here, I think, is that Paul is saying that before he put his trust in Jesus as the one who justifies, he was never really living for God. You know, Paul was very moral, very good, but it was always just for Paul. Always to earn God's favour so that he could get something in return. But Keller writes that when Paul was obeying God without knowing he was accepted, he was obeying to get a reward for what he could get from God, not out of sheer love for God himself. Now that he's justified and accepted, Paul has a new motive for obedience that is far more wholesome and powerful. He wants simply to live for the one who loved me and gave himself for me. See, Paul is free to live for God in response to his amazing grace. The demands of the law have been met in the death of Christ who paid the penalty for sin and we have been united to Christ in his sin-bearing death so that our past life of rejection of God has been blotted out. It's been dealt with. If not, then Christ died for nothing. But his death accomplished what it needed to. And we are finally free to live not for ourselves, but to live for him as Jesus himself enables us and helps us to. In Galatians 5, we'll get to dig into what this looks like. But for now, hear what Paul is saying. We are justified by faith in Christ, not by works of the law. Living in light of the one gospel means no longer living to get things from God, but means living in response to grace already given. So Peter, Paul is saying, just quit letting this group scare you with their false gospel that says there's more that's needed than Jesus' death. Quit letting disunity creep into the church and cause division amongst God's people. We are justified by faith in Jesus, or we are united by the one gospel of salvation in him. Now I've covered a fair bit of ground in a short amount of time, so just let me recap really quickly. That Paul has shown the Galatians and us this morning how the gospel transforms and unifies, how it gives freedom to live for God in relationship with him, because we're justified by faith in Jesus, not by what we can do. I'll say that again. He's shown us how the gospel transforms, unifies, gives freedom to live for God, all because we are justified by faith in Jesus, not by what we can do. For the Galatians and for Peter, Disunity looks like a group of people telling another group of people that they had to live a certain way that wasn't in accordance with the gospel in order to be saved. 
This false teaching caused even an apostle to allow disunity to enter. And if this can happen to an apostle in his church, it could happen to us in our church if we stop holding on to the gospel. If we even allow a subtle hint of justification by works to exist in our relationship with each other. So I have a question for all of us to think through together. Are there people in our church that you have not been eating with because they are not like you? What self-righteousness exists there that you need to deal with? Is there something in you that says, I am more presentable to God than that person, so they really need to step up their game before I'll accept them? Now this might sound like the start to a joke, which isn't my intention, but imagine this. Two Christians walk into a church, a homeless man and a bank manager. Which one do you more readily accept? I think it may often be even more subtle than that as we ask ourselves this question. But are there people in our church that you have not been eating with because they are not like you? Remember that justification is by faith in Jesus and not works. Remember that our standing before Jesus is shoulder to shoulder as sinners in need of grace. And let's rejoice together that this is the case and not turn from each other thinking that one is more acceptable than the other. Let's not set aside the grace of God but live under it together. On the other hand, there might be some people here today who really feel that sin at the moment. And I think it's very important to acknowledge that though we are justified by faith in Christ, and the penalty for our sin is dealt with, that this doesn't mean that we don't still sin. And it doesn't mean that we don't struggle with sin. Everyone does. See, living for God isn't just a walk in the park. But it's important for you to remember that those who trust in Jesus are united with him in his death. A death that means sin is dealt with, and that we are no longer considered guilty before God. Our old life of rejection of God has been put to death, and we have a new life in Christ. And if you feel the weight this morning of sin existing in your life, well, let that guilt play out the way it's meant to. Not by remaining on your shoulders, but by causing you to turn to the one who forgives, who doesn't shy away from you because of sin, but holds his arms open wide to you, waiting for you to come to him. He takes away our guilt and shame and makes us right with God. Ask him for forgiveness, knowing with full assurance that he forgives you. And if this morning is the first time that you're ready to admit that you need a saviour in Jesus, if you're ready to do a 180 like Paul and like the man in that story at the start and turn away from rejecting God to putting your trust in Jesus for the forgiveness of your sins, please do that. I'm going to pray a prayer now for all of us to join in with silently. And if you're praying this prayer for the first time, please go chat to one of the staff here or to a friend here or just contact us in any way because we'd love to talk with you about what that means. We are justified by faith in Jesus alone. A Saviour who loves us, who gave himself for us, and who wants us to be his. We're one united people, transformed by the life-giving gospel. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you that we are justified by faith in Jesus, and faith in Jesus alone. Thank you for forgiveness of sins. Thank you for life in your son's name. Thank you for your amazing grace 
and your incredible love for us. Please help us to trust in you and to live for you all the days of our lives. Amen.